First in number 7018. Hi, this is Wesley Yang, and you are listening to the Year Zero podcast. I'm addressing you at a moment of great political and intellectual tumult. Last week, the Supreme Court of the United States struck down a previous ruling that established what was held to be for nearly five decades and broadly understood by American women to be a constitutional right of reproductive choice, the right to terminate an unwanted pregnancy, the right to an abortion. The decision marks the decisive end of a distinctive period in American jurisprudence and American politics, in which liberals and progressives made recourse to the court system and to the Supreme Court of the United States as the vanguard of progressive change. Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, overturning Roe versus Wade, inaugurates the capture of the Supreme Court by a conservative supermajority that has, through this and other acts, served notice to the nation that a dramatically new judicial order is now in power. There has long been a small faction within left-wing legal academe that has been skeptical of reliance on the Supreme Court as the instrument of progressive change. And one of its leading figures in recent years is my guest today. Samuel Moyne is a professor of history and law at Yale University and the author of Testimony delivered just about one year ago today to a White House Commission on the Future of the Supreme Court. Now, how should we, how should that question be decided? Is it a legal question, a constitutional question, a medical question, a philosophical question, a religious question, or what is it? Now that it is in place and, and, and the court has definitively made clear that the councils of a self-imposed uh, judicial neutrality or restraint are no longer going to function, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in order to preserve the court's institutional legitimacy, the point is to move uh, in the direction of, in fact, disempowering the court. Um, and and so uh, Moyne rejects um, ideas of uh, term limits or or uh, court packing um, as in fact moving in the opposite direction. When in fact there were proposals that were considered at the time in the 1930s when uh, that 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 were were not taken in place uh, that were not taken on. Uh, that ought to be considered now uh, at a moment when it's clear that the court is going to be an obstacle rather than a, uh, an instrument of progressive reform. So uh, since a lot of the purpose of this uh, podcast is, is pedagogical, I want to begin by allowing uh, Professor Moyne to lecture a little bit to talk about the, 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 the role that the court has played in American constitutional governance from the, the traditional role that it played um, as, a, as a bulwark of white supremacy and in, as, a, as a weapon against progressive reform, and then also to the, 
switch in time that uh, the politics of the 1930s was able to produce on it, and then the, the and then to Steel Man. I, I, I'm I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term, but you know to provide the, the conventional view of the heroic phase of liberal reform uh, through the courts, why it was in the view of Moyne and others, never what it was cracked up to be and and why certainly now at this point when it ought the news ought to be clear to everyone that it is that, that we have we have exited that phase, um, uh, you know what that actually means going forward. So uh, if you could begin just by talking about, what the Supreme Court was, and then how we came to a point where it came to be seen that, you know, we needed, in effect, to use the uh, the, the the tools that built the master's house in order to dismantle it, and why that actually was um, a hollow hope, uh, to, to name a particular book. Um, sure. Well, first off, thanks for having me. I mean, I barely need to be here since you've said everything <laughs> that, that I, I want to say at greater length. Um, <laughs> So I'll, I'll try to follow, you know, the prompt. So just to begin with, um, you know, we, we can make some kind of, we have to make big generalizations because we're talking about an institution over hundreds of years. Um, and, you know, for convenience, we can say there's the first phase, which is before the end of the Civil War. Hmm. And, you know, what's distinctive about that phase is that there, there really aren't federal rights. I mean, there's the Bill of Rights, mm -hmm. um, which the you know framers needed to add to get the Constitution passed in the states. But uh, literally, the Bill of Rights only applies to the federal government um, and is is really unenforced even with respect to the federal government. Most you know politics is happening state by state. They have their own constitutions, uh, and they have whatever rights they have for whoever you know is protected by the legislature and judiciary of each state. Um, now, of course, it's not like the Supreme Court was irrelevant before um, 1865. First, it claimed, um, kind of in response to the first big populist moment in U.S. politics with Thomas Jefferson's, you know, election in 1800, the court claimed the power of judicial review, which isn't in the Constitution. And that, that didn't matter much for a long time because the court, again, before 1865, didn't use the power very much to invalidate um, federal law you know, of a co-equal branch of government or a more important branch of government. But the, the foundation is then there for the using the Supreme Court as a weapon in national politics. And it, as we'll see, you know, that potential is realized kind of throughout the period since the end of the 19th century. And, and then, you know, the Supreme Court's doing other things um, than like enforcing the Bill of Rights. It's enforcing um, the rules around, you know, the capture of fugitive slaves or recapture. Um, you know, and in, in, you know, there's Dred Scott, which denies citizenship at the national level to African Americans. And there's Prig v. Pennsylvania before the Civil War, which in which justice 
Joseph Story, who's from Massachusetts, you know, says, I'm for the union and to preserve the union, I have to let, um, you know, Southern states have a lot of power to get their slaves recaptured, even when they fled to the North, because Northern states began passing laws to try to help fugitive slaves. And the Supreme Court struck such a law down in Prigby, Pennsylvania. So it's not, it's not unimportant. But the Civil War comes, Abraham Lincoln basically overrides the court, overrides Dred Scott during the war, and especially after you know, the war, um, it's, it's in effect overruled by the 14th Amendment. And, you know, equally important, Abraham Lincoln adds a justice to the Supreme Court during the Civil War to get what he wants to do approved. So, so that's, you know, that's a court packing episode. But that's all prologue to the period after the and Civil War. He's able to do so just on his own discretion, right? Like, uh, no, no, oh, oh, no, no, he has to. Yeah. That has to be approved by Congress. Okay. But, you know, there, there's a series of moments when there's a one-party state mm. in this country. Right. There's a Republican moment yeah. of the Civil War and, and sort of after. Mm. And, and, you know, really interestingly, there's the period of the New Deal through, you know, Dwight Eisenhower's election. And that's a really crucial period, as we'll see. Mm. So, you know, then then that was phase one, like, you know, or phase zero. And the next phase, I would say, is the phase after Reconstruction. Because Reconstruction is about the legislature acting. Mm. It passes the Civil Rights Act in 1866, mm. another one in 1875, which is struck down mm. by the Supreme Court. Um, it it proposes and and then the states pass amendments that are that are about protecting rights, and that you know completely transforms the legal you know structure of the country, and yet you know the Supreme Court first guts all of that you know with with the you know the end of Reconstruction in the 1870s, and then it moves to be a super weapon. Um, for the the rich and and powerful of the first gilded age. So, as you get labor movements rising, as you get calls for you know new rights of the in the workplace, l- the limitation of working hours, safe conditions, etc. There there are there are proposals to pass laws, and first first that happens in progressive states, and. Business interests basically turned to the Supreme Court to in, get those laws invalidated, and the Supreme Court agrees to help. And so this is an this is an example, I think, of not the tyranny of the majority, from which uh, the beneficent judiciary saves you know saves us, but the reverse. And that's associated with the famous case of Lochner versus. New York, 1905, and that lasts through the New Deal. So you you have a court that's not protecting black people. That's this is the era when the so-called plenary power doctrine in immigration law is invented, which which is providing no constitutional protections to you know most most classically Chinese immigrants. And women are are 
you know, have have really have never gotten um, much love from anyone, you know, any any males and and are 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 are, are second class citizens too. Um, and yet, the judiciary functions very powerfully to protect rights. It's just the rights of business business interests. So you know, when when the minority, uh, so the the right to free contract is basically what is exactly being enshrined, exactly. and That's everything right. else is an incursion upon it rather than a protection of the rights of laborers or in the view of the exactly. Supreme Courts at that time. Exactly. Now, in fairness. You know, it's very hard to read rights of labor into the U.S. Constitution, but um, that that doesn't mean that they were entitled to read f- freedom of contract. Uh, let or you know, if you want to get really rowdy, judicial review to enforce freedom of contract into the Constitution, which which is what happens in the so-called Lochner era. Now, it's worth noting that the dissenters in the Dobbs case say what's really noxious about this situation is that this is the first time the Supreme Court has stripped a right mm. from anyone. Right. Well, that's not true. Yeah. Because in the New Deal, the right to freedom of contract, which had been really the most kind of vociferously protected right by the judiciary, um, is stripped mm. from the wealthy and, and powerful of that period. So this is this is why to me the 30s and 40s are really this pivotal moment. Mm. FDR gets elected uh, and comes into office, and you know he he is at the beginning of a one-party state, and it, actually it's the democratic hegemony over the political branches of government is is strengthened across his his reign especially in 1936 when he wins massively at the polls. But in the first period, he passes laws to save the country from the Great Depression, most famously the National Industrial Recovery Act. It's struck down by the Supreme Court in the kind of last stand of the Lochner, the Lochner spirit. And um, FDR you know, wins massively in 1936. He challenges the court which we can read when he proposes his own version of court packing as, you know, a threat. And it's a credible threat enough for, you know, in combination with the election for the court to, to change its ways and accept the New Deal, even though, of course, formally court packing fails. So this is important because at that point, if you're a liberal, you say, we just spent... <laughs> decades standing down court power and won. Mm. What are we going to do with the judiciary? Mm. And for New Dealers like Felix Frankfurter... Disempower it or capture it was the question, right? Is, is it, well, so you, to, exactly. So, um, and, and I think that the initial plan was, well, we will disempower it through doctrines. Mm. In other words, the judges will have their own rules that require their restraint so they don't repeat the mistakes of the past like in the Lochner era and of course that requires you to capture the court mm-hmm. so that the judges can change the doctrine and then impose it on themselves um but you know the, the those who'd instigated the last stand of the Lochner era in 
the early to mid thirties are, are these old men who retire and FDR is able to make lots of appointments, including Felix Frankfurter. And so that's, that's the, the choice that's made, you know, capture and disempower. Mm-hmm. Now mm-hmm. I think that was fateful. Capture in order to disempower. Exactly. So it was, it was fateful because, you know, self-regulation doesn't generally work. Like if I say, oh, I'm, I'm going to, you know, lose weight. Well, it's hard because I break my own rules. And even when I elaborate like rules uh, mm-hmm. that are, are, are really, you know, you know, complex and, and they, they seem like they're, they're not ones that I can just ignore. I ignore them. And so in a way the, 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 there's no institutional disempowerment. There's a doctrinal strategy of disempowerment and then there's this other fateful thing which is you know world war ii comes the america defines itself as an anti-totalitarian power Mm. and in the war judges begin to protect rights more than they have now they'd begun protecting free speech in between world war one and two um but they would we begin to have the assumption that what separates American democracy from the, uh, you know, purported democracies under f- communism and fascism is that we're not populous mm-hmm. and we have elite checks on the tyranny of the majority. And that means that elite judges ought to be disempowered, not to enforce freedom of contract against majorities but free speech religious freedom etc cetera, etc cetera. oh you mean empowered and of course you mean empowered rather empowered oh, yeah, yeah absolutely okay. so 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 the judges abandoned their the kind of lesson they'd briefly learned in 1937 so the the paradox here is that the new deal uh fdr's dominance of national politics is is purchased in alliance with uh southern democrats Right. So, so with, with, with segregation and, and so the, the faction of the, the faction of the party that is willing to move against it is, is it's educated elites. It's, it's judicial elites. Is that, that's basically what we're describing here. Well, that, so that, that's, that's like the biggest piece in retrospect in the sense that, you know, the new deal is still Mm. white supremacist in, in its electoral foundations. You know, the Democrats have this, you know, the solid South as a crucial part of, 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 you know, their coalition. Um, But I'm suggesting that even beyond race, Mm. there's, there's a kind of principal decision to re-empower the, the, the judges. Right. Because the the suggestion is, even whites need rights protection, right? It, it so that America is not the wrong kind of democracy, doesn't stray mm-hmm. uh, in mm-hmm. the direction of totalitarianism. Right. Even though during this era, it's a one party state. Now, it's also true, as you point out, that FDR um, can't pass civil rights law mm. with his coalition. Deviously, I think very impressively, he is able to get a lot of um, less racist judges appointed. Mm, mm. 
And the the origins of the judicial civil rights revolution mm. lay in his his judicial appointments, mm. not just to the Supreme Court, but to lower courts, because you know the Southern senators who would have had to sign off on all of those aren't aren't looking as intently um, at who's being appointed to the judiciary. Mm. Setting up this situation after FDR's death and after World War II, when you know the 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 judges can play a pioneering role mm. in rights protection for blacks, but they've already begun to reassert their power right. for whites when it comes to free speech, freedom of religion, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, dur- during the interwar period and World War II. So in the war, we have these sort of uh, plebiscitary despotisms that have taken over Europe. And the New Deal is what American constitutional government is able to generate, which is a four-term president, closest thing that we've had to a dictator, um, who, who um, uses his popular mandate to uh, crush the Supreme Court uh, that, that stood in the way of any kind of progressive reform, the kinds of reforms that were needed in order to create, the, to build a modern state, in much the same way that fascism and communism were the answers to how to build a modern state. And, clear out residual power of Junkers or whoever, right, in each of those societies, very, very, uh, very heavy handed uh, ways of doing so, but ways nonetheless. And, and so in America, we had that and it was done in alliance with white supremacy. And so most progressive politicians at that time happened to have made that fatal uh, and tragic alliance. Uh, and then and then so an anti-totalitarian theory emerges um, that says that the the leavening uh, uh, role of the judiciary uh, is is important to serve as a bulwark against plebiscitary despotisms, and then also it, it acquires a, a moral valence when it comes to the uh, the, the split on 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 the question of racial equality, uh, which, which of course is something that. Obviously, the New Deal coalition had a very uh, ambivalent attitude towards because it represented both the forces that were moving in the direction of um, uh, racial inclusion. And um, by that point, had the Republican Party sort of which which was at that point, a, you know, a minority party had it. It had become the party of Lochnerism. Right. Uh, and it, and it was. Uh, it was a political speed bump on the way to the New Deal that, that 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 had to be defeated and was in the view of the New Dealers. Still, the party of Lincoln, or or uh, in some of its factions, in its kind of northeastern uh, sort of uh, elite faction. Am I, am I wrong about that? Or is absolutely? It, yeah. Oh no, absolutely right. Yeah. So I mean, you, you, so when you get to the fifties, you have this very interesting situation. First, I mean, the the modern Republican Party accepts. At least, you know the the idea that there should be a big federal government, mm. um, that there may need to be some, you know, high taxation, which Republicans support from Eisenhower to Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. Um, but above all, as you're suggesting, there's still, uh, especially in you know amongst North Northeast elites, yeah. um, a commitment to racial justice mm-hmm. and you you can't look at someone like Earl Warren from California yeah. a republican right without understanding that you 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 have an alliance ac- across um 
elites, Democratic and Republican in the Northeast for racial justice that is organized to defeat the Southern Democrats mm. um, on this issue. Right. And if you like, that's the making of our current, you know, party structure, mm. because you, you look at, you know, who's the resistance today? Mm. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of elite coastal Democrats right. plus old Rockefeller Republicans, mm, right. and and they're organized against the you know the South above all, mm. um, and, and and you know would you know would have to make the story more complex. But this is a crucial moment because you ha- have already then in a sense the makings of the current party structure. Mm-hmm. It took realignment, right? Uh, you know, and the Southern Democrats to leave the Democratic Party. And it took, you know, various events like the election of Donald Trump for the never Trump Republicans to embrace, you know, Joe Biden mm-hmm. and so forth. But, yeah. but, but, you know, our current, our current, you know, partisan structure is, is rooted in this moment when there wasn't tons of especially on race, separating the Republicans and Democrats in the Northeast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Very interesting. Okay, so I guess now we're on to the heroic period of the court uh, and and just just kind of go through that and then and then talk about why that actually may have not been. uh, I mean, because it certainly you you can you can rattle off as Noah Smith did in that tweet. uh, You can rattle off all of these landmark decisions but something else, of course, was also happening uh, in the court at the same time. So talk about that weird conjuncture. Well, so the, the, these these two fateful decisions I've mentioned in, in the latter part of the 30s and, and 1940s set up the 1950s and 60s, when you have a, a one-party state in the legislature, sometimes with a, a Republican president, you know, once Eisenhower gets elected, you know, wanting to block any civil rights reform. and the judiciary is a very tempting way, at least to have a first move. Mm. And you can sympathize with those who said, not only do we need an anti-totalitarian judiciary to save us from the tyranny of the majority, but we don't have a way, you know, of getting civil rights law passed Congress uh, because of this, the nature of the democratic coalition mm. through the fifties and even sixties. Right. So, what happens is that you know the Supreme Court makes the first move, mm-hmm. and maybe it was necessary for it to do so. Mm-hmm. And I would concede that. And you know, no, no, no one can just idealize legislatures because they're often anti-democratic mm. as well. Mm. They're less anti-democratic in in the way they're legitimated because they're elected. Mm. But of course, in their in the way they're you know organized and structured you know, with the Senate and so forth, they can be functionally non-majoritarian. And, you know, they don't, you know, the point of legislatures is not just to protect rights of the oppressed. It's to pass the laws the majority wants. That's their central function. Right. And so if you're most concerned about the vulnerable and weak, you're, you're not necessarily as concerned about what the majority wants only when it coincides with the interests or can be connected with the interests of the vulnerable and weak. So anyway, it made, it made sense at the time. Like it seemed like a good idea for liberals, which included liberal Republicans 
at the time to rely on on the Supreme Court. But even then, in this era from 1954 Brown v. Board through 1973 Roe v. Wade, mm-hmm. um, there's there's let's say formal rights protection, mm. like the court can say you have to be equal under the law, uh, women have rights, mm. etc. <laughs> but it it can't pay for it. Yes, and that's why, and it can't it can't kind of magically get real equality mm. because that requires you know much more political support mm. than any opinion can generate. And so, so first, the court never does much be, to protect rights more than formally. You know, a good example is the failure of the courts to desegregate the schools. Mm. It, it sets out to do so in 1954. You know, by the 80s, the project is, is given up for lost. In spite of some real progress, yeah, uh, it begins reversing in in the eighties. And right now, the the state of desegregation is back to what what it was in nineteen sixty seven. Mm. Uh, so it went per, f- you know through the nineteen eighties in in a a more desegregating direction. Mm. And mm. now we've been in a resegregating direction for for those forty years since almost on Roe v. Wade. Within five years, there's a decision that says um, that there's there's no kind of um, concern that poor women might be ones especially in need of the abortion right, um, and that's Roe v. Mayer, 1977, mm-hmm. and so that that means the right is real, but but on the formal side, mm-hmm. and then add to this that this this one time you know, requirement of having the Supreme Court act as first mover on civil rights in 1954 for all the reasons we've talked about. Mm. It generates congressional action. Mm. And the, the real civil rights revolution is congressional. Right. There's no desegregation of schools between 1954 and 64. Right. And then you get Congress moving and you get the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts and 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 those are the really transformative steps for the situation of black people in the United States. And of course, that legislative work gets eroded. So the the basic claim is that, okay, there may have been this need, you know, contingently for one time for the court to act. But if you if you create a super weapon, mm. it's something that, you know, whoever gets control of it. Mm will find a tempting non-democratic way of getting their policy done. Mm. That's what the Lochner era had been about. Mm. Right. And that's what the liberals used it for. Instead of taking civil rights, gender equality to the country and saying, ultimately, this is something on which we have to find a way to convince our fellow citizens. They relied on the super weapon. And of course, as you would predict, the empire struck back. And really, since the 1970s, the Supreme Court is a story in this last phase of the conservatives struggling and succeeding in getting control of that super weapon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, they would say that we're just, uh, you know, we're, we're dismantling the super weapon and returning things to the democratic process. Do you, do you think that they did that in Rome? In Dobbs. Oh, in Dobbs. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, to an extent, um, 
but there are, there are a few provisos. So um, one is that um, it it's not as if the modern right has given up on the Supreme Court as uh, an an anti democratic super weapon in other areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so the story of the First Amendment, free speech and religious freedom mm-hmm. since the seventies is to make them very business and Christian friendly. Mm-hmm. And they have no trouble striking down state laws left and right if they interfere with those rights and now interpret it in this very neoliberal way. Mm. Examples would be, uh, you know, Citizens United or the Janus uh, versus ACFME uh, on labor rights in California. Um, and then a host of religious freedom cases, including one this term. And so um, that's not that's not returning power to the state. Mm. It's using mm. the Bill of Rights, mm. not unenumerated rights, as in Roe, right. but the Bill of Rights yeah. as an anti-democratic superweapon against progressive reform. Mm. And, and not to mention laws protecting you know, women from discrimination is a lot of the religious freedom cases have been about how Christians don't have to follow those laws if because they can claim an accommodation or exemption or whatever. So it's not it's not it's very selective. It's true that the right from Justice Antonin Scalia through Justice Sam Alito, who wrote Dobbs, has has talked the talk of of returning power to popular choice. And that's but that's true only to a point and not a very far point. So the question would be, what if we took that rhetoric seriously? And it tends to track their political preferences. Of course, of uncanny, course. Uncanny, uh, uh, right, fidelity. Of course, yeah. of course, that's right. I mean, so, you know, this is what's funny because you could say, well, they're protecting the real rights, the ones that are already in the constitution. Um, but even there, they've made a lot up. You know, I've mentioned the first amendment uh, on speech and religion, but you know, you throw in the Second Amendment, and really, no one for two centuries believed <laughs> that it meant what they now say it means. And of course, they're striking down popular legislation. So, so the Second Amendment does not guarantee an individual right to gun ownership, in your view? No. And and that 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 is something that has been made up recently. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a I'm a. I'll just say in passing, I'm a realist about yeah. the law. Like, I don't think it means anything until <laughs> right. it's been decided in present controversy what it means. And that's so, you know, the, in a way, the hilarious thing about this is that we're always reinventing the law and saying that, you know, the founders did it. Mm, right. Um, and so on this topic, no, I think if you look at what was believed <laughs> to be the content of the Second Amendment, before this Heller versus District of Columbia case and and the new case called Bruin um, that that kind of put that you know right to an for an individual to bear arms on steroids no one that there was no consensus around that and understanding of the amendment wasn't really even taken seriously as as a view about what that amendment implied and so yeah it's it's made up now that, like, again, if you're in this con law game, 
we're, we're, we're in a struggle over making things up. So that itself is not a criticism <laughs> because both sides are doing it. Um, that's like, that's the coin of the realm to say, oh, it, my policy is already in the constitution. And if you can get five of nine to vote with you, then, <laughs> then, you know, it, it wasn't your nifty idea. It was something the founders committed the country to centuries ago. That's like the, that's the kind of like kabuki dance or, you know, that's the game that's being played. Um, and of course, if you're a Democrat, it's totally illicit because first, why would we, why wouldn't we just argue for policy rather than come up with this pretense that it was already chosen hundreds of years ago? And then of course it introduces all these horrendous dynamics like converting democracy into really like who gets the power to choose the judges who get to pull the trigger on mm -hmm. the super weapon. And that, that's mm -hmm. been, a, a, I think, a catastrophe. And I think, you know, the right made these arguments for decades, I think, correctly. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, right. and the far left, in fairness. Um, and now you're getting liberals kind of waking up to the fact that uh, this, this was the correct view. And we should really maybe kind of figure out some way of, of a reset so that we're not doing politics via ju the judiciary, but rather politics via politics. So those who would say, well, this is a mediated form of representation in itself, uh, what, what is your response? No, to that? of course, that's we're talking about, uh, you know, a ju judiciary that's not just like a, a, a platonic guardian caste that's you know, mm. not unrelated entirely to the democratic process. But what it, it does is, um, I think, is there's an element of that still where you get the Harvard-Yale syndrome, where the entitlement for this mm. is not, is this person going to represent the president's or my political views, but are they, right. are they right. you know, excellent jurists? And so the, the, the discussion really for our lifetimes around these people has not been honest. Um, if it were going to be honest, we'd say, well, who does this person represent? What do they represent? What are their, what are their political views? But of course, they learn not to talk about their views at all, even their jurisprudential views. And the kind of, again, the ritual is that, oh, they're, they, they clerked for one of their the their predecessors and you know were were they were on the the Yale Law Journal and so forth and so on. So to that extent it's not it's not really representative. It's it's a kind of elite capture of of part of government. But then you can say things like, well to the extent it's representative, it passes through a president nomination that we know is not nationally democratic, certainly not lately, and mm -hmm. a Senate confirmation right. process that has right. never been democratic, that's by design. Um, you know, the, the fact that the president is now so closely associated with minority rule at the national level is kind of a novelty. Um, but the fact that the Senate is supposed to be a break on a national majority that's the, that's the constitution so you know it's representative but 
in the way of the Senate's representative. It's in a very skewed way. Yeah, so it represents the, um, you know, a claim to elite (laughs) self-regulation that at least by the year 2022, I think you saw it a couple of decades earlier yourself, just ought to be seen as a sham in general by everyone. I think that's right. And so, and so, I, I don't know if you want to dunk on any of your peers, but the, uh, but but to many people dunked on, uh, uh, right? Noah Feldman, when it's like you know, when it came time to uh, you know uh, to to name you know Justice Amy Coney Barrett, he, he spoke about her credentials in glowing terms, and then when she made the decision. You know, the 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 suddenly the legitimacy of the court is is in question or has been destroyed. But it ought to have just been a little more evident <laughs> less than a year ago, right? That that uh, and I guess that's the that's you know that's why people are harassing him on on social media. I mean, uh, his case I think should be set to the side. Just I mean, I, I you know people like to you know flame him and he can take it, but his he, you know he just w- was a co clerk with. Uh, this woman and a, uh, a fr- and became friends okay. and supported her and that's you know yeah, yeah. what I'm I'm for loyalty right. but more important his <laughs> his case for her explicitly acknowledged that she would vote to overrule Roe v Wade he she would vote she'd be a very very excellent advocate for it and correct. Uh, and a driving force correct so we want and that to be the case correct the his argument was was really more about Brett Kavanaugh actually and and. In a very edgy mm. piece, he proposed uncanceling Kavanaugh um, in order to mm-hmm. recruit him for the, the liberals. Uh, now that never happened. Although actually, right. his concurrence is very interesting and something liberals should care a lot more yep. about. But the larger point, of course, is that in these elite law schools, I happen to teach in one. The the right. you know, if you're an eyes on the prize person, it's it's clerking for the Supreme Court. Most of my colleagues have done so. And mm-hmm. you're kind of oriented to the judiciary as as a kind of, you know, expert who whispers in the ear of the the empowered jurists who you know, whose place you hope one day, you dream one day of taking yourself. And so Absolutely. I, you know, I've argued for years and not, I'm not far, very far from the first that these elite law schools, you know, apart from being, you know, finishing schools for the, the next phase of the elite in general, have been incredibly radioactive in their orientation to juristocracy or, you know, the, the rule of the wise, allegedly wise jurists in our society. <laughs> So the elite law school, they 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 see some expedience in keeping around uh, and 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 uh, you right, like like a person who is a critic of aristocracy uh, within the aristocracy. So I'm uh, well. So there there I know. Um, I I would say I'm here on accident. You know, I I didn't I I kept my views on this uh, close to the vest for a while, but um, and worked on other things. Um, and uh, uh, there are probably uh, some people who regret, you know, voting me on for that reason. But no, I mean, there, there's been tolerance for some burrs under the sandal for having a bit of a gadfly. I think for decades is... there, there were some people called crits um, who argued against yeah. this kind of orientation in the, you know, 1970s through 90s, and they were so peripheral. I went to law school in the late 1990s, and 
it was um, just extraordinary. I mean, I took constitutional law, among others, with Lawrence Tribe, who has had a revelation in the past year or two that this marginal mm. view was correct. But for 50 years, <laughs> the, the, the mainstream liberal viewed ju- judicial review as like an essential feature of any credible democracy. And that's what was taught. And, you know, basically we were, we were taught to idealize judges in general and the Supreme Court in particular, although, you know, it, it was already halfway through the, the current 50-year drift of the judiciary right with the erosion of all the already kind of uh, superficial, you know, rights protection that the Warren Court had, had you know, in its defense institutionalized. Hi, this is Wesley Yang. You are listening to the Year Zero podcast, which is hosted at Substack at wesleyyang.substack.com. So the... If Hillary had won in 2016 and we didn't have a 6-3 court, this would not be self-evident to a lot of other people. You would still be arguing this, though, and you would still be saying this is like the a kind of at a very high level, an orientation toward politics that says that restrictions on the scope through which things can be regulated um, is actually not in keeping with a progressive view, just just in general, right? And and I think this is consistent with your critique of human rights when you stretch that to encompass the category of the human. You're inevitably going to be dealing with something very thin, very focused on avoiding the absolute worst outcomes and cruelties, and. It, it isn't necessarily the case. It does not necessarily follow logically that that would mean neglect of the large scope in which we can envision and create a world, but it actually appears to be the case uh, just as a matter of reality that that has been so and, and, that, and that that kind of really highfalutin rhetoric can be easily appropriated and hijacked in the service of aggressive war and so on and so forth. Is that yeah, like, that- that's a kind of general high-level intuition that you had that has driven your view toward rights versus, versus political representation um, throughout. And I, and I think that's taken from, you know, a, a relatively far-left uh, approach to things that happens to converge with what conservatives were arguing throughout since the I think that's right. Uh, and, you know, I, you know, there are debates then to have about, well, what, what coalitions are you willing to enter I'm very happy kind of mm-hmm. on this substance of argument to say, uh, let's take just this topic of today's podcast, you know, judicial review, judicial power, that conservatives really were allowed to own that. And and as you pointed mm-hmm. out, the judges were also allowed to own the democratic gesture um, and mm-hmm. in the rhetoric of opinions in some of these earlier cases, you find uh, very heartfelt, um, uh, you know, rhetoric about the importance of democratic self-rule, but it was from the right, and so I, I, mm. I think that's just undeniable as a matter of fact. And I think that you know, my vision for a progressive movement would be a more populist one, 
um, because I think that mm -hmm. it's only that way that you transcend some of the pathologies of elite rule. And especially, you know, if you're concerned about the class structure uh, of, of these societies, you know, elites aren't giving that up, um, whether they're mm -hmm. wherever they're located institutionally. And so you, you, you then are in, in a situation where someone like FDR is a good example. And I think liberals understandably got get scared of that kind of view because they point out, as you did earlier in the episode, that populism can go wrong. And, you know, there was FDR, but there was also Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. And so this is, you know, this is a debate amongst friends, among people who are, are not, you know, evil, um, any side, obviously, but are just, you know, prioritizing different risks. And I'm, I'm willing to say, you know, democracy ought to be our most important value, prioritizing the risk that it will um, it will make make some progress on on class, especially and 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 even race to the extent that class and race intersect so profoundly, but can also go wrong. I think liberals have the reverse commitment that they're they're in the business of disaster avoidance, and if that means superficial rights protection, well, judges are still best positioned to provide that kind of disaster avoidance. That's the that's their belief. Mm -hmm. Now I think what's new now is that that belief is crumbling because it turns out that you when you bet on judges, they not only don't do what you hoped, but they become a tool of your enemies. Mm -hmm. And then you have to rethink mm -hmm. your whole political uh, outlook and that's why, you know, someone like Lawrence Tribe is so interesting because he's over 80 and mm -hmm. he's really like mm -hmm completely changed his mind about everything he believed in it, for his career. And that's true, I think, of, of, of a lot of people. It's not about him. It's about the kind of liberal mind of mm. the past 40 years. Do you think that the exogenous shock of the Trump victory was in some sense inevitable? Was it something that you were going to see in your lifetime? Or did you expect to see legal liberalism to keep chugging on and be untroubled uh, by something that would force people to acknowledge, oh, uh, <laughs> Sam Moyne is right? No, I. first of all, there's not a broad acknowledgement. Uh, I mean, I haven't gotten any uh, okay. any right. any apologies or anything like that. I I would say, and I would say, you know, the with court packing and with 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 yeah. the legal left, you know, res even responding to Dobbs, it's not obvious that they will, you know, trend in the direction that I'm suggesting. You know, the the temptation is going to be to somehow recapture the court and get back to yep. the way things are supposed to operate. Um, and that's why, mm -hmm. you know, the burden's on me to say, yes. look, they never actually operated that way. You never got that far with the judiciary. Uh, you created something that then the right struggled and s succeeded in, in, you know, using to its own ends, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, in law schools, you won't find that argument prevailing because mm -hmm. all the power that lawyers can exercise is going to be, you know, unless they try to run for office via, you know, elite networks and judicial power. And so there, there's very little likelihood that there will, that legal liberalism will ever be fundamentally abandoned by the elite lawyer 
um, the question is whether they're they're swamped by other forces. And I do think the Trump election was, you know, obviously a shock to the system. I've, you know, we probably shouldn't get into this, but I think that you you have to see 2016 most fundamentally left and right as a rejection of the kind of elite hijinks that have led America into lots of wars, into neoliberal order. And, you know, for someone, you know, on the left, you say, well, that's, that was, that's correct to reject those policies. And, you know, justice for a transracial majority is really elusive, not just because of Trump, but because the liberals failed to provide it through their elite tactics. And so you're looking for some, you know, alternative and you're, 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 and yet, you know, Trump's election, I think primarily kind of has, has led to the reconstitution of, you know, the elite aspiration just to like make democracy go away. So that's very troubling. Right. So, so the, Trump is a, a pathological manifestation of a certain kind of revolt in a system where the possibility of any kind of revolt or even the underlying uh, democratic exercise of agency had been rather ruthlessly uh, been put down by a form of right. elite liberalism. And so we have to, the question that we have to answer is about the underlying right. elite liberalism. I think that's right. Not, not just not just a kind of double down on its, uh, you know, on on its power, and and also, and, and also support any and all of its increasing, increasingly overt abandonment of of the restraints, uh, you know, on its exercise of power that uh, that are supposed to constitute it as as a as a kind of a, a form of a transcendent, you know, response to a populist danger. Uh, when you know they end up often being just as silly, uh, irrational, in the process of responding to the pathological manifestation to the revolt against themselves. That's basically where my instincts are, and I think actually we I, seem to agree. I, <laughs> I share that view. I mean, that's you know the the title of Thomas Frank's, I believe, most recent book, and I may have lost track. Is it just sums it up? The uh -huh. people know. Uh -huh. And so the so so two things that you know are are you know ought to be visible to everyone, which is that the court is now in possession of the right and is going to be their super weapon for our lifetime to the extent that we don't do something about it. Uh, and, and on the other hand, the uh, liberalism, you know, if we want to re refer to the pathology of it is, well, how do you arrive at a situation where <laughs> some, you know, some niche identity is more important than the American working class? And, and and I think we reached a really terminal stage of that where it ought to be, you know, it ought to be visible to everyone, a kind of final terminus of where that particular kind of politics, where, you know, an elite sets themselves up as, as the guardian of a class of victims rather than a representative of a broad coalition of workers and of all of Americans, um, just different forms of framing. And uh, that 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 dictate the actual content of politics, and and I don't think that you can see those two things that I just described: the the the, the capture of the right, of the courts, 
the capture of the right of the super weapon and the and the inanition of a certain kind of elite politics in the form of you know the war against microaggressions is more important than the war on behalf of uh, worker welfare uh, as as unrelated phenomena, I think they actually are are two manifestations of the same weird conjuncture. I mean, I I base I largely agree <laughs> with that. I think that view can be taken in unhelpful directions and and then more helpful directions. Right. And um, yes, you know, I I would say the the more helpful directions start with the insight that you know a a class orientation is by definition anti racist. Because because of the entrenched inequality by race in this country, especially, um, is it will always have a disproportionate correct. benefit because of those who are disproportionately contained within the class of uh, within the lower class. Correct. But if if you're for a majority politics that would be you know anti-racist, you you need to have some breadth to your program. And you need to make arguments that have breadth and don't just restrict themselves to s- certain spaces and their popularity. So I'm I'm with you on that. Right. I think, um, you know, the the critique of identity politics. I'm not as I'm not a, a, I'm not going as far as some because it it just seems to me that actually, you know, a class is an identity. And it, it class incorporates a lot of the, the the noble part of the aspiration in identity politics, and it 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 deserves a central place in any populist uh, agenda. So you know, to that extent, I'm I'm in agreement. So in terms of the uh, uh, the things you talk about in your testimony, like what does it mean to disempower the court rather than try to shore up the legitimacy, to give up on trying to recapture it? and uh, acknowledge that it is captured by the other side and that the political response and the one that can actually change our politics in the direction that we want in order to deal with the underlying debilities that produced the pathological response that took the form of the particular populism that we're dealing with um, it, uh, is, 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 uh, so why didn't they choose the disempowerment back in the thirties? I guess there were powerful, influential personalities like Frank Furter who, who determined the course of things. Uh, and, and why do we think that, that it can happen now? You know, you, you say that we, we can't know in advance, uh, what these things would do, but that we should be willing to experiment because we are comparing it to a status quo that we already know right. enough about <laughs> with Dobbs to to expect uh, a lot more, and and therefore we should give ourselves some latitude to take some political risks that the legal mandarin, at, um, just by their nature, are are going to want to refuse. Great question. So I, you know, I think you're right that the the really interesting question about the 1930s is not whether core packing succeeded or failed, um, because I think it's clear that it it failed kind of formally. It didn't get out of committee, but it it succeeded uh, informally in enforcing the court to blink. The interesting question is why was that that threat chosen compared to others? Because some of these some other approaches were you know mooted in the twenties and thirties, and 
I think one basic answer is that people like Frankfurter believed that if you had control over the court, you could make it safe yeah. through doctrinal means. Um, and, you know, he, he, you know, loved this old Harvard professor, he and some of these other progressive jurists had had named James Bradley Thayer, who said, look, the court should use its super weapon only in the most egregious circumstances of legislative tyranny, when everyone agrees, when he said there's a clear error. And, you know, I think there was just kind of an optimism that judges could kind of reform themselves. Like Japanese internment, for example. Exactly. Right? <laughs> Where it wasn't Where done. Where it wasn't done. Exactly. By, and, and, uh, well, yeah. that's the kind of hilarious thing about this 1940s rights moment is that you have protection of Jehovah's Witnesses, <laughs> but not Japanese, et cetera, et cetera. But but I think basically right. they 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 believed, you know, again, if we're empathetic, it it hadn't been tried that judges could could self correct, and if we, mm -hmm. if now we conclude based on harsh experience that we can't rely on judges through doctrinal means to mm -hmm. to use but not abuse their power, then we have to use other means, and I'll call those institutional means, like we. We impinge on their power from the outside. Now, you said in the opener that mm -hmm. I oppose term limits and and court packing. I definitely don't oppose term limits. I just don't think it that does much. It just means that. Okay. It just means. I mean, like it 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 it, it ought to be that there should be a, a code of judicial ethics that applies to Supreme Court justices. It ought to be that there are term limits, but those those are kind of small small bore, you know. In American politics, they'd be revolutionary, but kind of on a on a on a global stage, they're kind of boringly obvious, um, and they don't solve the basic problem, which is judicial review. And so, there, I think we've we've argued that you know court packing could at best enable you to do the New Deal over, and either because it's a threat or because you actually succeed and get some new justices. And what, what are they likely to do? Well, either they'll choose judicial restraint through doctrine or they're, they'll double down on Roe, et, et cetera, and use the superweapon for liberal ends. I think that's, it's crazy to think that's a viable choice when, unlike in the 30s and 40s, you don't control the country in a one-party state. Uh, in in our narrowly divided country, the Republicans will just pack back and so forth. So anyway, our our remedies are different, and you know, th basically the idea is make it impossible for judges to use the power they've had. And you know, one way in the in the case of abortion rights would be to pass a federal statute and to say that judges can't overturn it and try your luck and say there's another confrontation as in the 30s with the Supreme Court about whether the people get to rule or not. And it, yeah. of course they could, they have means of resisting, but in the end, I think, you know, a sufficiently mobilized population concerned to engage in self-rule uh, would, would, could mm. successfully overcome that, that obstacle. So when, so when Roberts uh, protected uh, uh, 
Obamacare. Uh, that's an example of the court self-regulating and trying to preserve its own legitimacy by avoiding a confrontation. Is that right? Sure. I mean, uh, he 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 blinked in in the sense that he was prepared to strike it down entirely. And you know, it's always worth remembering mm-hmm. that it the court did strike down the Medicaid expansion which was the part for poor people. So again, this if you're concerned yeah. about class, uh, you know, it, it yeah. Roberts acted to preserve the individual mandate and um, hmm. not the Medicaid expansion, which which was invalidated hmm. um, with the super weapons power. Yeah, yeah. But but of course, that that's a he's he's someone who's concerned to um, never do anything so radical that the super weapons power is affected. So he's a juristocrat mm-hmm. who's just a Burkean uh, juristocrat, and he's he's concerned about legitimacy. I don't think he's someone who believes as such in judicial restraint, let alone um, robbing power from the court. But he's someone who blinks more readily than some on the right. He, he wants to preserve and entrench the power through, through exactly. restraint, but he was operating at a period where that was the last moment where he had Correct. to do Correct. that. And, and now just now we're just in a whole other phase, and it's, it's really as simple as We that. are, because the right doesn't need his vote anymore. So the left desperately needs his vote if it's to you know, limit the damage. And there, you know, there are going to be interesting cases coming around the constitutional right to travel, with with states um, passing laws that try to, you know, keep their own citizens uh, from going to get abortions elsewhere, or even, you know, non-citizens from helping those women. And you know, mm-hmm. Kavanaugh and Roberts are 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 in the cent- are the centrists of this court. Now, in real life, they're they're mm-hmm. pretty far right, but um, they they have signaled that they're open to you know coalition with the three remaining liberals in in coming years on a host of issues. But you know, Roe very prominently. Mm-hmm. If 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 abortion is to be protected post Roe, they're going to be major players. Those two guys. And now I'm just uh, okay. I'm going to go back to the hard part uh, for you. Okay, uh, one more time. So. We go back to Brown, and you're like, okay, you know, I get why right. I had to do it that way, uh, but it's really the, you know, the political activity and uh, and the civil rights movement that, yeah. that did it uh, a decade later. Yeah. Uh, a civil rights movement operating in a country where Plessy is still law, right? Um, is is it able to? Is it is it prevented from being able to uh, to to do what was done in '64? I think it's a difficult counterfactual. I mean, my belief looking at other places which are not similar in their racial histories uh, mm. uh, uh, to this country yeah. is that legislatures can provide rights under their own power. I mean, that's the American story again. Mm. If you look across its sweep or if you're interested in disabled people or you know, who have not been treated as mm-hmm. a suspect class by the judiciary, but won the Americans with Disabilities Act, which the Congress passed. Right. But so, so there, there, I'm not, you know, comparing an ideal solution with a real one, because there are a lot of defects to the democratic mm-hmm. process. Above all, you don't always win. That's the point of it. And it can take a long time to win, yeah. even when you do. 
And in that sense, right. quick fixes, if they're available, are incredibly tempting. But I think what we've seen is that they also have a long range cost, which is that if your quick fix can become your enemy's quick fix, um, you know, instead of mm -hmm. convincing Americans that um, abortion ought to be illegal, you get the Supreme Court to do your work. That's a classic liberal move. And mm -hmm. conservatives said so for decades. So um, I think I'm, ma I'm making a very modest proposal, which is that we tolerate the risk of democracy, including mm. the risk that we will not always win. But in where, where I come from, it, it's part of democracy that we um, accept defeat. And, you know, that's incredibly agonizing. Uh, you know, when Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. lost mm -hmm. twice, I was crestfallen. Uh, and I think an alternative trajectory mm -hmm. was cut off. But that doesn't mean there can't be, you know, an, an, another round. And so mm -hmm. the the, only, the claim is not that, you know, what rights and, you know, policies we want would be guaranteed if we turned away mm -hmm. from judges. I think they would be more likely. Mm -hmm. um, but that there's a mm -hmm. kind of principled argument that the way we're supposed to do politics in a democracy is make your argument deploy your rhetoric and win or lose and you always have another chance and mm -hmm. and then there's always this uh you know my basic rights so on you know it's going to be debated in the legislature sure. and so on uh and that's that's a that's a tough thing when it comes to it's a huge that, concern but but there's no alternative i think mm -hmm. that's the basic point which is that if if it turns out the judges don't do the work of that that yeah. that that the legislature does poorly then your only hope yes. is to get the legislature to do a better job yeah and we did learn in 2022 that what can be done by judges can be undone by judges and now at the point where where the other judges are in control at least now uh there ought to be an opening for uh an alternative approach so jurisdiction stripping means that means oh you pass a law and you say you yeah so you, you could just kind of have another judiciary act which set, which outlines you know less power for the judiciary but I think most credibly you would say let's pass a law about whatever let's say abortion rights and add to it that it can't be invalidated by the judiciary on mm -hmm. on on some set of grounds. The most rowdy thing would say it can't be deemed unconstitutional. Um, and the, you know what that does is not abolish the judiciary. Um, it may not abolish judicial review, but it would say this law is off limits. You could also have a supermajority rule or legislative override, which would allow the judges to do whatever they want, but require them to you know, really agree and um, or and or with the legislative override to let the legislature, you know, second guess the Supreme Court. And all of these are have, have are functionally the same because they basically say um, we want to experiment with with transferring power from the judiciary to the legislature. And then there's a debate about how, you know, how thoroughly you do it, um, whether it's statute by statute, like 
an abortion rights statute. Let's take, let's, let's try it out. Let's try out a supermajority rule and say, no, you have to get Mm -hmm. not just, you know, uh, uh, Kavanaugh, but, you know, Roberts and Kagan to agree that some statute is unconstitutional. And if, if you can do that, then the judiciary should retain its power because mm-hmm. maybe there are just unholy laws. And if enough judges agree about that, they ought to retain the power to, to, you know, invalidate them, but not otherwise. And so there, there are these various experiments you could run and you could see how the judiciary responds because it's a challenge to its power, any of these. And you'd have to see, do they tolerate it? And how does the law change? Do we then run other experiments? So Congress, Congress could say, Congress could say, we hereby declare that there has to be a seven-two majority, supermajority, uh, in order to overturn a law. They and could do it in general, or Supreme they could Court do it say, on law, by, you know, like in each statute they pass, mm-hmm. say an abortion rights statute. So, and I'm not saying, and then the court could correct. say that's unconstitutional, correct. Uh, and then and then Congress could say, uh, no, it's not. Well, (laughs) so, you know, the the, the, in the end, it comes down to like, how far is the court willing to go and how much respect is it is it given? And, you know, it's 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 simple to point out that then in the end, it's, you know, it has no power other than the respect Uh its judgments are paid. Uh, and I think that, you know, the Civil War is a great example of Abe Lincoln just ignoring the Supreme Court uh, and asserting control over it through court packing. But, you know, we're not there yet, but there may be, there may be, I mean, I don't, I don't assume that it's set in stone that the Supreme Court's judgments are, are, are to be treated as the last word. Um, and it's not in the Constitution that they are so legislative override mm-hmm. is worth trying um but no, it would be a power struggle i mean we these are unpredictable in their outcomes and that's why you know your traditional mm-hmm. liberal would be mm-hmm. very afraid of and you know stephen Breyer, who's got an hour and 15 minutes left of being a supreme court justice wrote a book about well we should whatever we do we have to preserve the respect the supreme court gets but you know i'd i'd I just can't imagine why. I mean, institutions are entitled to respect based on what they do. And so there again, I'm not guaranteeing anything. I'm saying there would have to be a struggle to change the nature of the country's politics, but compared to what, you know, the alternative is doing nothing, which of course seems to be what the Democrats are doing right now in response to Dobbs. <laughs> So I've read I've read many many invocations of uh, President Jackson's uh, famous quote. Uh, I don't know the history of what happened after the quote, uh, and and um, did he did he just ignore the court, and, and or was he brought to heel by some instrumentality? No, eventually? I mean he was after Jefferson. Jack uh, Andrew Jackson was the second populist, and so there's a pattern of wars declared mm-hmm. by populists against the Supreme Court, and FDR was only you know. The, the, the one who, you know, continues to be, it have some importance in liberalism, um, mm. in even contemporary liberalism. Right. And there's, there's, you know, there's no doubt that Andrew Jackson 
were he a, a, alive today would be treated as far worse than Donald Trump and um, would be treated as mm-hmm. like a Victor Orban uh, and mm-hmm. uh, beca- because he basically defied the judiciary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he did it. He got away with it. And and uh, but but then eventually the court managed to. Uh, right. Itself. So, I mean, there was a struggle on Andrew uh, Jackson's and- time over the Bank of the United States and basically mm-hmm. Jackson won. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, there, the, the court, I think, um, you know, reasserted some power in, in when, when there began to be the sectional crisis around slavery, you know, and it, it the court mm-hmm. sided with, uh, the union at, which at that time met Dred Scott and Prigby, Pennsylvania, which you mentioned, and then it, above all, it reasserted itself after the end of reconstruction. Uh, in the Lochner era. Another uh, difficult question that will be coming up, I guess, uh, in the next term is uh, affirmative action, which is which is always, I think, in polling, you know, two two to one, uh, two to one opposition to it, uh, and where wherever it, it has come up uh, for a vote, I think maybe with exception yeah. of one case, uh, in in state referenda has always been rejected, including most recently in in, in right. California in an election where the uh, the Democrat won by you know an enormous margin. So it's never had popular support. Um, it's always had an elite consensus behind it that encompasses, you know, the ownership classes who who see that it's expedient for various purposes. Uh, you know, all the court has done is say that you're allowed to do it under certain circumstances. Um, it's done because our institutions feel it's important. I think the uh, you know there's general confidence among observers that you know Clarence Thomas is gonna. Is going to put the uh, put put an end to it, but but you know um, only on paper, <laughs> right? Uh, and so th- this is a how does this fit within within your uh, framework of majority politics, uh, counter majoritarian politics? Well, so I it's not a difficult question predictively in the sense that it's mm. just utterly clear that yeah. the Supreme Court will overrule its precedents right. and <laughs> declare affirmative right. action unconstitutional and. In violation of the equal protection mm. clause. Now, the reason yeah. that fits completely with my theory is that it's unpopular some places and certainly in in polls. But the this is an example of a policy that has made it over all the hurdles it takes to enact a government policy through the political process, mm. and the judiciary. Yeah is overturning it. So that has the same structure as mm-hmm. Lochner. And it reminds us that if you right. favor affirmative action, you have to win politically. And mm-hmm. that is, you know, just the what the way we should think about all all of all of our beliefs about, you know, progress that it that there's there's going to be a counter argument. There's going to be an interest politics, you know, African Americans, Asians, et cetera, and we have to figure out, you know, how can we compromise? How can we, you know, get the best, um, you know, the the best thing through the political process and improve the political process itself, and and then deprive judges of the last word. Now, there's, you know, to go back to an mm-hmm. earlier conversation, there's a separate critique of affirmative action, which is that, um. Over generations, when it 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 works in a class-free way, it divides, you know, th- the racially oppressed against itself, and you know, becomes a project of, uh, 
you know, diversifying the ruling class. And, you know, mm. that, but that's a policy argument I would make against it uh, in trying to, mm. you know, argue for a, a more class sensitive form of social justice for the racially oppressed. And, you know, if you look at, at Europe, which again has a very different past um, and present, it's affirmative action is, you know, popularly supported. And so there's no reason it can't be. And, you know, the, the mm. juristocratic strategy of preserving it, um, you know, I think is, mm. uh, has, has shown its limits in this country. And so I think we need to, it's, it's, it's easy to fit with my general outlook, because in that case, we're asking the judges to just stay out of the way and let whatever policy comes out of the political process prevail. Okay. So I think we only have a couple more minutes left. I don't know. Is there anything, um, you know, if you were to have a concluding statement at this moment where, you know, I, I, I don't think you would, uh, I don't think you would hesitate to call it a, a kind of, I told you so moment. Um, but, but what kind of, what kind of guidance do you give to your, your fellow legal elites? Well, you know, it's early days. And as you pointed out, it's kind of contingent that this crisis has arisen. Again, if Hillary Clinton had won, et cetera, mm. we would be in a very different place. And it, indeed, it would have given a second lease yeah. or third or fourth, whatever, on lease on life to the you know beliefs we've been trying to undermine. And the, the country is narrowly mm-hmm. divided. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all of this is just talk until there's a, you know, supermajority coalition and neither side is, mm-hmm. has put it together uh, in recent decades. And mm-hmm. so we're looking at yeah. a kind of interregnum period in, in our, in American history. And um, that's important because it enables us to step back and, and, and be a bit more abstract and philosophical about what our options are and which ought to be chosen before we actually see any coalition successfully, you know, mounted. And and we don't know whether that will mm-hmm. be on the left or right, and anything's possible. And so uh, it's it's a really interesting time, very frustrating because neither side can really rule. There's just gridlock and trench warfare. And so it's, it's a very unpredictable but, moment too. But the, but the crisis, there, there are progressives and you're among them who see the crisis as potentially opportunity to break a certain kind of For deadlock. Sure. And, and, the, and the right availing itself of the super weapon could also in the long run be prelude to crisis for them. Absolutely. Uh, that's, 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 that's what we see. And, um, and of course, this is the crisis of the super weapon for those who once possessed it. Um, and, and now there will be a turnabout in much the way that there was a turnabout in the politics of the country in the sixties. Exactly. Um, and, and so that's the prospect that we're seeing. And uh, the worst thing under these circumstances is to succumb to uh, and uh, an apocalyptic sensibility when what, what we're talking about is a return to the field of political contestation that can now, especially for progressives and liberals, no longer be avoided or hidden from. I, I think that's very eloquently put. Okay. All right. Well, uh, thanks a lot Thank for you. this very interesting conversation. All right. Thanks for the invite. Okay. See you on Twitter. All right. Goodbye. 
This is the Year Zero podcast, which is hosted at Substack, where you can go to read my writings and where you can subscribe personally to enable the continuation of this work at wesleyyang.substack.com. that would be what would be involved if the facts were different and the state could prove that there was a person with a constitutional right. Well, if, if it were established that an unborn fetus is a person within the protection of the 14th Amendment, you would have almost an impossible case here, would you I not? would have a very difficult you case. certainly would, because you'd have the same kind of thing. You'd, you'd have to say that uh, this would be the equivalent after a child was born, if uh, the mother thought it bothered her health having a child around, she would, uh, she could have it killed. Isn't that correct?